0: Lundit Lopate at Large, I'm London Lopate. When it comes to addressing global warming, polls indicate that many Americans are not convinced that society can solve the problem. Tom Bowman has written a concise practical primer on climate action in which he claims that we have the ability to surmount that mentality if we simply make the commitment to not just try, but do. Its title asks, what if solving the climate change crisis is simple? It's published by Changemakers Books and brings Mr. Bowman to our show now. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: Ninety-seven percent of climate scientists agree that humans are causing global warming. That's pretty close to 100. It's about but, as close
1: as it gets, yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, but despite the obvious impact of global warming, the wildfires, the drought, the floods, the mass migration, mass extinctions, the melting of the Arctic ice, etc. a recent Gallup poll shows that independent voters are less concerned about climate change than they were in the past, and they become less likely to accept that global warming is happening and that humans are the cause, less likely to perceive that there's a scientific consensus about global warming. How do you explain that?
1: Well, you know, the survey work leads to a lot of apparent contradictions until you step back and look at the bigger trends. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time with some of the climate researchers who study public opinion. And one of the things that they've noted is that um, pe- while there's a majority of people who believe that, that the scientists are right, that climate change is real, confidence in that belief is not as high as it could be. And that that holds a lot of people back. The other piece of that puzzle is that very, very small percentage of the public thinks that we're going to solve this problem, even though more about half of us believe that we could. Only 6% of the population is hopeful that we will. And this ends up being, I think, the key, the crux of the issue. If you know, we're faced with the whole problem of rearranging the deck chairs on the proverbial Titanic, mm-hmm. then people are, aren't going to engage, and it's easy to just assume that the problem might not be as, as real or as bad as we think it is, when in fact we actually have the power to create the society we would prefer to live in.
0: You ask your readers, when was the last time you made a decision solely based on the facts? That's right.
1: That's right. Well, you know, we humans are animals, and we have the same evolutionary uh, uh, biology and and brains that other animals have, even though they're more advanced. But that means that we're subject to all kinds of, of uh, sort of wired-in programming that gives us tendencies that that are not all that helpful for making rational decisions. So we rely on things that we've heard from others. We take shortcuts. We simplify. We simplify inappropriately. And we really are highly attuned to what we believe is the prevailing attitude among the people who matter to us most. And so if we don't have a context, social context, that says, hey, this is a problem for us to solve. We should own it and we can solve it. It's very easy for people to dismiss it because they're bucking the trend. They're bucking their peers if they if they take a different view.
0: And we saw an example of that last Wednesday with quite a few people in Washington. We sure did. Yeah, this Uh, is
1: an extraordinary day.
0: (laughs) You note that cultural identity can overpower scientific reason because people tend to defend the status quo.
1: Yeah, so one of, the, one of the most shocking findings to me a number of years ago when I started working more with social scientists um, was this finding that people who are most dismissive of the climate crisis are often quite well-informed about it. Uh, and, and the prevailing mentality among the communication and education community about climate change has always been that we need to teach people more about the problem. We need to teach them climate science. We need to encourage them to think systemically about what's going on. And if we can just show them what we know, they will understand mm-hmm. how important this is and they'll become motivated to do something about it. And that's just plainly wrong, unfortunately. Uh, and so it, as, as, we our- saw,
0: as we mm-hmm. saw five years ago when the chair of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma, brought a snowball to the Senate floor to prove that climate change is a hoax.
1: That's that's right. And,
0: and I know, mean, he I should know. He's a, he's the chair of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee.
1: Well, there's, there's every chance that he actually does know. Um, you know, a lot of the motivation for people who are climate deniers is that they don't they don't want to see the implications of it come to, you know, they believe that solving climate change is an invitation to big government and uh, conservatives. People on the right are opposed to big government. They're more libertarian in their views. Uh, And so it's easy to dismiss—you know, the first line of defense is to dismiss the science. The second line of defense is to say, it's not human-caused, even if it's real. And the third line of defense is to say, we can't solve it, all for the sake of, of protecting an ideological point of view that says, I don't want the big hand of government interfering with the economy. And what's most unfortunate about that is that big government
0: solutions aren't the only opportunity that we have. How much a factor is confirmation bias? Uh, This
1: is a huge one.
0: Um,
1: You know, we all tend to, we all see information through our filters, right? And so human beings tend to prioritize information that confirms what we already believe. And we tend to diminish information Confront you know, that disagrees with us, with our pre-existing beliefs. And in the past, in the days of the three broadcast networks, and there was a presumed moral and information authority from uh, society's uh, uh, leaders, you know, government, corporate leaders and so forth, we had a check on that, right? We had an important uh, sort of curatorial check that said, these are the facts, and now we can disagree about what we want to do about those facts. But in the day of 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 24-hour news cycles of Fox News and MSNBC and, and social media, people pick and choose where they get their news from. And there is very little challenging us to look at information that we don't particularly want to see. And this makes it much, as we've, you know, pundits have talked about this for years now, that it's much more difficult to build a sense of unity than it used to be. Um, because of this bias.
0: Well, haven't researchers and practitioners recommended that we shift away from doom and gloom forecasts?
1: Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the two things that really matter most in in promoting a climate agenda and encouraging the public to em- embrace this problem and solutions to this problem are, number one, confidence in the scientific consensus. Um, there's a fairly low level of understanding of that 97% agreement that you mentioned at the outset. The other is hope. We need to build a sense of hope, of rational, reasonable, realistic hope that the solutions to climate change are in our hands, that we can activate them across this country. We can do it in our local communities and in our state governments and in the federal governments and internationally with technology, changing business practices, changing uh, uh, technologies in our homes, we can increase justice, building hope that we can create a healthier, more vibrant society is really the key to turning the corner on this issue.
0: But uh, there's also a money factor here. The fossil fuel industry has contributed a lot of money to members of Congress. Uh, They've uh, run many campaigns. uh, And I, I guess they've also convinced the president, President Trump, has called climate change a hoax. Yeah, that's that's right. And
1: the force and power of this disinformation campaign should not be underestimated. It's been well-funded. It's been strategically managed. You remember the, the uh, um, when the Tea Party movement was really taking off, it was described as an astroturf rather than a grassroots campaign, which really meant that it was being masterminded by libertarian and fossil fuel interests, and they were recruiting the public at the grassroots level to be the foot soldiers of it. And the denial campaign against the climate crisis has worked in very much the same way. And it's been a, it's been a sort of a joint effort of the fossil fuel industry, on the one hand, and ideological libertarians who don't want big government solutions to anything, on the other, they've made common cause. And, you know, the Koch brothers... Charles and David Koch, uh, who are the owners of the largest privately held fossil fuel interest in the, in the United States, uh, are also libertarians. And so, trying the to one who's stuff, still surviving, anyway. What's he, yeah, That's right. That's right. Yeah. But Go the ahead. point is that well, the, the point I was going to make is that it's really been a common cause between the two. It isn't just about money and it isn't just about ideology, but that's the those are the bedfellows who have been working hard to undermine this. You know, in, in twenty ten um, my business won an award from the state of California for decarbonizing its operations, and as a result of that I was recruited by a campaign that George Schultz and Tom Steyer were running to protect California's climate law, which was called A B thirty two, from a from a ballot initiative that it turned out was funded entirely by out-of-state oil companies who wanted to kill our climate law in California before it spread across the country. Uh, and so I met Tom Steyer. I took media training with him and did editorial boards. I was on the local Fox News affiliate and so forth, the local Pacifica affiliate talking about this. and uh, um, and it was, you know, that measure was defeated two to one in California, which was which was great. But what we have seen over and over again is that the fossil fuel industry will will mask their investments in trying to undermine climate action in the guise of environmental concern or or concern for climate justice and and racial justice, and it tends to
0: be one kind of hoax after another that has to be ferreted out. You point out in the book that you're not a climate scientist, educator, policy expert, politician, or journalist. So you got brought into this simply because somebody uh, was uh, impressed by what you were doing with your company? Uh, Is that how you got involved in an initiative to to help meet the goals of the Paris Agreement?
1: Well, it's not quite that simple. Um, I owned an, I, I like to you know, I've sort of basically disqualified myself from any sort of expertise with that sentence in the book. The reality is I've been in the communication business for 30 years. I owned an exhibit design firm for 25 years. And in the course of that work, I was invited to create a new museum for the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. And this is the the most, this is the premier science of uh, honorific society in the U.S., Uh, chartered by Abraham Lincoln to advise the government on on matters of science, engineering, and medicine. They write all those National uh, Research Council reports, for example, that advise the White House and Congress. Uh, And they wanted to create a museum, and the first exhibit they wanted to do was about global warming. This was in 2003. So I became uh, essentially an independent study graduate student at that time with some of the finest, most eminent climate scientists in the world, in the United States, certainly. Uh, and I and I needed to learn what the climate science said in order to interpret it for ordinary people through an exhibition. And just a few years later, in 2006 and 2007, uh, I was invited to do a second exhibit at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in, in Southern California. And uh, the attitude among the scientists had just flipped radically in just a few years because The melting of the Arctic ice cap had accelerated dramatically in those two years, three years. And the rate of carbon pollution in the atmosphere was rising much more quickly than anyone expected, mainly because of the economic growth in China. And as a result, uh, uh, I had a moment of epiphany, a, a moment that I describe in the book that was utterly shocking to me to discover just how far down the road of global warming we were and I looked around and, um, and thought, how many other communication professionals can I name who, who have really learned what the climate science has to say? And the answer was pretty much zero back then. And so it changed the course of my career, and I decarbonized my company as, a, as an experiment. I wanted to know if it was possible for a small business to decarbonize without any outside help. And I began working extensively with interdisciplinary groups of of climate reachers, climate researchers, social science researchers, economists, and others to to really try to bring together, uh, you know my guiding mission has been to to sort out how can we build faith in solutions among the American public.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest is Tom Bowman, who's written a book called What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. And it is published by um, by Changing, uh, what is it called? Changemakers, Changemakers. Books. Changemaker's, Changemakers Books. books. Um, how do trends, uh, since you, you you've been involved in this for a while, how do trends in greenhouse gas emissions or global temperatures compare with the, the projections that were being made 10 or 20 years ago? Are the yeah. uh, scientific projections proving to be approximately right or too pessimistic or, or too optimistic?
1: Well, there's a, there are a couple of features in that. That's such, such a good question. When, in 2003, we presented in that, in that National Academies Museum Uh, what the projection scenarios that the IPCC was looking at had to say. And there were a bunch of them. What they basically did is they tried to do economic forecasts, geopolitical forecasts for alternate scenarios for the future. Would the world work together to solve climate change, or would the world be fragmented and every nation goes its own way? And and, uh, would technology development occur quickly or occur slowly and so forth? And then they ran that Information into their climate models to see what would happen, and the so-called worst-case scenario. Um, w- these were animations that we did on a on a TV screen, and we had to keep zooming out on our graph for this worst-case scenario because the emissions, you know the uh, the content of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would rise so high that the gra- that you had to keep shrinking the graph in order to keep track of it. And at the time, I asked. The curate, the science curator of the project, what do you make of this? He said, "Well, you know, thank goodness we have time. Humanity, humans are wise. We won't go anywhere near that." <laughs> well, the truth, the truth is, emissions have exceeded that worst case
0: scenario since that time. Although, ironically, greenhouse gas emissions are down this year because of the the global COVID nineteen pandemic. But we can't count on pandemics to help us resolve this problem.
1: No, we can't. But I think we can take some take some solace in the fact that even in the midst of this horrific and tragic pandemic and and so much grief and loss of life and economic disruption, we have also this is the you mentioned earlier that people defend the status quo. No one would have thought a year ago that businesses would uh, restaurants wouldn't allow people inside, that people would stay home that people would work on Zoom and Google Meets and the other web platforms to do their business. And a survey last summer found that 69% of the people who were fortunate enough to work at home didn't want to go back to the office. They preferred not commuting, not putting on their suits. Um, uh, People were preferring the cleaner air in cities. And what this says is that it's actually possible for societies to change very, very quickly quickly when we feel motivated to do it. The other good news in that is that this is establishing a new status quo. You know, our economy is changing in some ways we can't really fully appreciate yet. And it could well be that we have opened the door to a different way of thinking about how we go about work that will play out in the next 10 years or so um, and could work in our favor.
0: It's interesting to note the people who are uh, engaged in trying to change people's minds. This past weekend, the Mind and Life Institute hosted a symposium called The Dalai Lama with Greta Thunberg and Leading Mm -hmm. Scientists, a conversation on the crisis of climate feedback loops.
1: Yes, yes. In fact, it's got... What are
0: feedback loops?
1: Oh, feedback loops are, it's a scientific term that that when you start to amplify uh, warming, the conditions in the environment change in a way that accelerates further warming. So when you melt the, the Arctic ice cap on the oceans, uh, the ice reflects sunlight and keeps it nice and cold. But the ocean is dark blue and it absorbs sunlight, so it heats up and that makes the Arctic warm faster. So they call these things feedback loops. It's like it's like when you're someone's talking in a microphone and they get too close to it and you suddenly hear that horrible screech, right? Mm-hmm. That's a feedback yeah. loop where it just keeps amplifying and amplifying and amplifying.
0: Yeah, the UN's name for public engagement is called ACE Action for Climate Empowerment. W- what's happening there? Is that in uh, in conjunction with the Paris Agreement?
1: It, it, it is. This is a this is a really transformational story. Um, and if you'll indulge me for a minute, I was of recruited course. last spring to get involved with a project here in the United States that was being done by the Action for Climate Empowerment community. Let's, let's use that term in quote, quotation marks. Um, ACE, or Action for Climate Empowerment, is, is codified in Article 12 of the Paris Agreement, and it's, it's also heart, part and soul of the underlying UN Framework Convention Treaty, which is the international treaty that the Paris Agreement sprung out of. And it says, and it's it's not a requirement, it, it encourages nations to engage the population of their countries in helping to find and implement solutions to the climate challenge. And it further encourages nations to create national strategies that are unique to their own national circumstances in order to accelerate public climate action in their countries. So, in other words, it's saying that, that it's not only up to federal governments to solve the climate crisis, it's up to the people of, of those countries, it's the people of the world, to engage in solving this crisis together. No, To date, no major emitting country has ever submitted a national strategy to the United Nations. Um, other countries have, and on the whole, they've done it in ways that sort of are... Comp- compartmentalized and safe. For example, you assign it to your department or ministry of education and you say, go educate the public about climate change. And it kind of goes nowhere. You know, it doesn't have real horsepower and force. So during the Trump administration, the last year of the Trump administration, we all hoped last spring, a group of educators, social scientists, climate activists, climate justice activists, youth activists got together and said, uh, and people from federal agencies, and said, you know, we can't create a national strategy for the United States, but we know we desperately need one. What can we do to move this forward so that the Biden administration can rejoin the Paris Agreement with real horsepower, and and help the United States become the first country in the world to develop a national strategy to align the work of activists and educators and communication professionals, health professionals, businesses, all getting everybody flowing in one direction to empower the public on this work. And I was invited into the coordination team. This was a pro bono, voluntary effort. And the astonishing thing is that, uh, like, you know, those of us who work on climate outreach are inundated with opportunities to do things for free in hopes of developing mutual support. And those efforts tend to give us a very strong sense of camaraderie and very little practical help, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of, you know, people scratch their head, do I want to get involved in this one too? Um, as it happened, though, um, through sheer being in the right place at the right time and sheer uh, willpower and and strong relationships. 150 people who are affiliated with 120 different institutions, networks, and organizations came together for a series of really transformational dialogues last August. Uh, and those dialogues put climate justice and equity right at the center of climate action. And and the, what we did is we created a, a, a safe place where groups of people all were treated as equals nobody's rank or logo or affiliation mattered it was people talking to people about their vision for the future what steps we would need to take to to accomplish that vision and I had the privilege of being the leading the writing team a pair of us who did the wrote up that report and it was astonishing because the ace it's called the ACE Strategic Planning Framework for the United States, and you can see it at aceframework.us website. Uh, and you can sign on to it. It is the most rich, content-filled, specific, useful document I have ever seen for advising policymakers on how to turn the corner by shifting politi- you know, policy focus in ways that will enable this ACE, broad, ACE, diverse ACE community in the United States to accomplish its goals. Um, So we're in the process now of trying to do briefings to the transition team. Um, We, the other, the co-author and I, uh, or writer and I of the ACE framework have a book that has just come out on Amazon, as a matter of fact, that that also includes the framework, but adds some commentaries by ACE leaders from, from different walks of life, from business and and indigenous rights and other education and other groups. Um, and it also has definitions and additional context for it. It's part of the same book series. So so our effort now is to encourage the Biden administration to say, yes, we will create a national strategy, and and then to use this framework and its processes to bring more and more people who care about climate change into the process of co-developing this national strategy together so that it really speaks for all of us who do this work rather than trying to impose someone's point of view on everyone else.
0: Are the publics of some countries uh, more engaged than others? France for example? Where I France, hear the, farm, the farmers are very concerned about uh, the, the role that they played in the past in, in uh, leading to uh, to greenhouse the emission of, of greenhouse gases
1: yeah i'll tell you how i look at that we the united states has been has been dragging its feet there's no question about it. i mean we're the only country that left the paris agreement for example and and, and, and you're I'll, saying
0: we're assuming we're going to go back in once uh, oh, the I, there's no question there's no
1: question that biden's going to get us back in probably on if not on day one certainly within the first hundred days um I mean, it seems he he, he hired John Kerry to be his climate envoy and John Kerry was the lead negotiator for the US on the on the Paris agreement um so it seems entirely likely that the United States will rejoin and it also seems entirely likely that we will rejoin that the Biden administration will want to rejoin by demonstrating bold leadership rather than just sticking a toe in the water and and so the great hope is that the ace agenda can be a focal point for really helping the US and the Biden administration you know, demonstrate genuine commitment to this.
0: You point out that wealthy people and nations enjoy most of the, the benefits of fossil energy, while poor people and nations, especially in the global south, suffer disproportionately from the harmful consequences. How long has global warming been harming people of color?
1: When did we first start burning coal? About 1785. Um, The issue is that that people of color and low-income communities are always on the front lines of environmental harm. So, for example, I live in Long Beach, California, and we have two freeways that bisect our city, one of which comes out of the, the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. So it's a major truck traffic route. Twenty-five percent of the ocean freight coming into the United States travels up that freeway. And guess who lives within the high pollution zone of, of you know, a quarter mile or so of those freeways? It's low-income com- neighborhoods. It's communities of color who are suffering higher, much higher rates of asthma, childhood respiratory disease, lost work days, sick days, loss of income. It's... And you find this at the at the fence lines of refineries and factories all across the country. You find it along freeways all across the country. Um, And you also find it in rural communities, which have, you know, have in many ways the fewest economic resources to deal with the impacts of climate change. Flooding, drought, you know, lack of adequate sanitation, lack of access to fresh water. Even here in California, there are 350,000 people in the Central Agricultural Valley who have no access to consistent, clean-running water, and those people are his overwhelmingly Hispanic. So, so there's no question that, that, from a from a justice point of view, an equity point of view, wealthy white Americans enjoy most of the benefits of fossil energy, while while people of color, indigenous people, enjoy or suffer. A greater share of the harm. Not that we're not all suffering from air pollution, but it's disproportional in a big way.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Things are tough all over on Earth. It's hot in December, cold in July. When it rains, it pours out of a poisonous sky. Okay. Well, before we get back to my conversation with Tom Bowman, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been severely challenged by the pandemic, and many of our longtime members have had to drop their financial support, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to in this time of crisis to make a contribution of any amount to help help keep community radio and Leonard locate at Large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to wbaiorg right now. Becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy is a great way to support the station without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard Topate at Large. If you call 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbaiorg today, we will be happy to send you a copy of the book that we've been discussing, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple, by my guest Tom Bowman. All you need to do is call right now, five one six six two zero three six zero two. Go to your computer or smartphone and visit give2wbai.org and sign up at the monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever's easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. You don't even have to mention the book to the the call center operator or check any additional boxes online. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show, and my staff will take care of the rest. However, however you choose to contribute, the important thing is that You take that step to keep the show and this legendary radio station on the air. We're the only station on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored without... And uh, we uh, we don't have uh, uh, any funding grants of any kind. Uh, One last time, the number to call, 516-620-3602, or go to give2wbai.org online. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at this show and the station, thank you so much. Back to my guest now, Tom Bowman. His book, What is Solving the Climate Crisis? is simple, and it's published by Changemakers Books. Um, Is the answer simply... To uh, stop using fossil fuels, <laughs> considering the <laughs> considering the many ways we rely on fossil fuels, how would that even be possible?
1: Well, well, let's 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 talk for a second about the the title of the book, which is really what you're putting your finger on, and then we'll
0: get to how it's possible. Um, you know, I was going to get to your solutions. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, well, but there are just so many problems to overcome.
1: Yes, exactly, and and. One of the things that is really the reason I wrote this book is that I have been working with with aquariums and museums and scientists and and for a long time trying to figure out ways to get the public engaged and and hopeful about the climate problem. And and since the communication environment is so heavily driven by people who think about global systems. We have been taught to think, and and I've heard scientists literally use this word, that global warming is a wicked problem. And a wicked problem is defined as a problem that's so complicated that you can barely define it. You can never get all the information that you need. Uh, If you solve a piece of it that you can see, you probably create unintended problems that you couldn't see. And so the best you can do is is try to manage it knowing that you're going to take your lumps along the way. And I can't think of a more dispiriting way to tell people that we want to tackle the the climate crisis because what people are left with every time, and you've seen this in documentary after documentary and news story after news story, is that in spite of these impossible odds, the power of the fossil fuel industry, the interconnectedness of all these global systems, we have to muster the willpower to solve this great challenge. And everybody knows that we run out of willpower quickly. That's why, you know, who who makes a New Year's resolution to diet and has it mm. has it going robustly by July Fourth of July? Almost nobody, right?
0: It's also and easier so, for me as an older person to uh, not think much about it. But uh, if I were in my teens or twenties and thinking about uh, what's going to happen in the near future if this trend continues i might be really scared
1: oh yeah absolutely and and so the the question is is our picture of this is our mental picture of this problem doing us any good or is it actually causing trouble is this wicked problem idea helping us or harming us as a as a way to approach solutions and I describe in the book um, a lesson that an art professor, a painting professor, taught me once that I have found to be invaluable. I was working on a painting when I was in college, and, I, and it wasn't working. You know, you've, anybody who's, who's worked on an art piece knows that sometimes things just aren't really? working, and everything you try seems to make it worse, you know, and you just can't quite think, what the heck is wrong, right? And uh, my painting teacher came up to me, and he said, I'll tell you what you do hang it upside down on the wall and go home. Because when you walk in tomorrow and you see it upside down, it's going to look completely different to you, and you're going to know what's wrong. Right. And I can tell you as a, as a design office owner, um, that works beautifully. And it applies to other problems too. And and the, the way it applies to other problems is, if you're trying to solve a problem and every solution seems to fail, ask yourself, is there one premise or requirement or assumption that I've used in every single attempt I've made to solve this problem, and if there is, no matter how fundamental and, and and substantial you think it is, try setting it aside and see what happens. Because in my experience, what happens is you unlock all kinds of new possibilities. And so if you hang our picture of the climate crisis upside down, which is that this is a wicked problem, it's this Gordian knot of interconnected global systems, and you try to untangle one, and pretty soon you're pulling on all the others, and it's impossible. When you hang that upside down, what do you see? There's only one thing to do, stop burning fossil fuels.
0: Although the Trump administration has rolled back many regulations during the second presidential debate, the president claimed that the U.S. has the cleanest air and water in the world. And he tried (laughs) to pressure Joe Biden to say that he would phase out fossil fuels. And Biden wasn't ready to make a total commitment.
1: Uh, Well, he wasn't ready to make a commitment to to end fracking. Uh. That was the that I think. And and you have to, you know. In the politics of a presidential campaign, that looked like it was a gotcha question right mm. it, because if if biden says i'm going i'm gonna eliminate fracking in five years or whatever he would have said um, it 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 would have been an opportunity for Trump to even champion more loudly in in fracking country that Biden was coming for your job right That was what that was probably really, really about and and so. Policies that make, in our goal basically is to make fossil fuels irrelevant. And the market is doing that increasingly already. You know, uh, American coal companies are going bankrupt because coal can't compete anymore with, with the cost of, of renewable energy or natural gas because of fracking. And so now we've got the fracking problem, but we are eliminating the worst polluter, which is, or we're reducing the worst polluter, which is coal. And we will get to fracking. You know, as this as this process evolves, electric cars are are propagating. You know, it used to be only Tesla and the Nissan Leaf, but that's not true anymore. And it turns out that an electric car costs less to own over its lifespan than a than a gasoline powered car. Um, and that's just one aspect of many. We're working at home now and using Zoom rather than traveling everywhere to do everything and there are things we dislike about it but there are things we we like a great deal about it and so so you know things evolve economies evolve and so the the argument i'm making in the book about the simplicity is that if if burning less fossil fuel becomes an organizing principle for the decisions we make in our businesses our workplaces our institutions our governance at the at every level of government from municipal to federal to international. uh, If that becomes an organizing principle, we're gonna discover that there are lots and lots of ways to reduce fossil fuels without suffering economically. And in fact, we're gonna create all kinds of new job opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities in the process that are gonna benefit
0: us greatly. Well, it's been pointed out that except for hydroelectric power and revised farming methods, the other proposed major solutions all come with environmental costs of their own. The windmills and uh, the, the costs of the, them and the environmental destruction in, in building them. Solar panel farms, you you knock down uh, large forests in many cases, nuclear power plants. So can we rely totally on hydroelectric power?
1: No, I don't think so. Um, but we can rely heavily on energy efficiency. You know, when I reduced the operating uh, they're called Scope 1 and 2 Emissions, and I had them independently verified by the Climate Registry for my business, right? And we reduced our operational carbon emissions by two-thirds in just 15 months, and nobody suffered. And I saved money in the process. And the remarkable thing that we did is we just eliminated wasteful energy use by which I started driving a hybrid car as a company car instead of a, an SUV. Um, uh, we upgraded our air conditioner when it broke down and got one that was more energy efficient. Um, we, our copier lease expired. We, got, we exchanged it. I told the staff, get a machine that does what you need to do and make sure it's ENERGY STAR rated, and they did. And it worked so well that we shut all our other office machines off, <laughs> right? And so we cut our electricity use in half and we, we switched to LED light bulbs from incandescence. Those simple steps saved two-thirds of our emissions footprint, which is rem- it's just astonishing, and it tells me that there is an enormous amount of waste that we are collectively paying for all the time. And if we improve efficiency, we need less energy. Now that we need less, we can rely more on rooftop solar, on the solar farms that have been built in the desert. Now they, they, the wind farms, you know, they've discovered that if you paint one blade of a wind turbine black, you reduce bird strikes by something like 75%. So, no. so now, now, I'm not saying that there's no harm, but the harm that's caused by these kinds of renewable energy are dramatically less harmful than mass extinction and the kind of harms that are
0: caused by climate disruption. And during the campaign, admittedly, Joe Biden did say that he wanted to transition from oil, uh, which led to Republican criticism. Doesn't the Biden plan call for eliminating emissions from the electricity sector by 2035? I think that's right. Yes. But that's a long and, time from now.
1: Well, yes, and yet, and yet, the good news is that when when these kinds of goals get set, and the and the uh, the target is zero by a certain date history shows that we what happens is innovation happens much more quickly and markets shift technologies get embraced people look at the way they're doing things differently and and what happens is we tend to beat those targets by significant margins so and and one of the reasons that we don't we don't tend to feel as hopeful as we should about the opportunities is that the economic forecasting models that are used to project how long it will take and what the economic impacts will be are in actually not capable of, of forecasting innovation, right? And, and this makes sense. I mean, how, do, how would you say in a forecasting model how much innovation will occur? And so innovation is never part of the economic forecast, and this is one of the reasons why we beat the forecasts, significantly if we structure what we're doing properly. So I think there's reason for significant hope, not that we're going to end global warming overnight. It's not like we get to throw a switch, but it means we have the capacity to do better than we imagine we can.
0: My guest on today's Leonard located at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org is Tom Bowman. Who's written a book called What If Solving the Climate Crisis is simple? Complicating it all is that in in its last days, the Trump administration has scheduled a last ditch oil and gas lease sale that could lead to drilling in one of the country's last great wild places. Boy, no it's kidding. targeting about a million acres in Alaska's one and a half million acre coastal plain. Uh, which lies between the highest peaks of the Brooks Range and the Arctic Ocean. And uh, yeah. as I understand it, it's going to be very hard for the Biden administration to reverse that.
1: Um, it's as if the Trump team is trying to do as much damage on their last days as they possibly can, isn't it?
0: Why is it and, a political thing? Uh, Why has it become well, a political thing? Because uh, Republicans are less likely to believe uh, in uh, climate change than Democrats.
1: Yeah, and it's like they're trying to—well, you know, the—, the So two things I want to say about that. One is that there's a silver lining even to this horrible news about the the oil leases, and that is that banks aren't going to finance oil development in the Arctic anymore. Um, uh, There have been announcements by a number of major banks that they will no longer finance fossil fuel development in the Arctic, Uh, and the international development banks won't do it either. So, uh, So this is good news. And so it might mean that these leases are kind of moot, that it just won't make sense for oil companies to even try. Let's keep our fingers crossed and and hope that that's true. But, you know, there was a time when Republicans and Democrats were agreed about global warming, and it was during the the negotiation of the Kyoto Protocol um, Mm -hmm. that they went their separate ways. And, you know, um, you probably know about the famous Frank Luntz memo, the Republican pollster Frank Luntz. Uh, who told the Bush administration that public opinion about climate change was solidifying. And there was a narrow window of opportunity for Republicans to challenge the science, try to create uncertainty, and therefore preserve the prospects of the fossil fuel industry. And they leapt at it. They went for it. And that's when Republicans and Democrats really went their separate ways on this issue, unfortunately.
0: Well, many people remember Richard Nixon uh, as a bad president, but he was great for the environment. He created the EPA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Uh, so the, the whole thing has uh, turned around. The head of the Environmental Protection Agency argued uh, recently that global warming is beneficial and that the energy and the uh, energy secretary claimed that global warming is caused by ocean waters. Yeah,
1: you know, I sort of wonder, by the way, in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a, a huge environmental champion as a Republican governor in this state, too. So <clears throat> there are there are many exceptions to these sort of rules or these trends. Mm-hmm. I, I've often wondered if the federal government is going to be the last one to the party on climate change, because the states are doing, many states are doing good work. The, the C-40 cities, um, lots of cities in the United States have commitments. Um, The We Are Still In movement lists 65% of the U.S. economy is covered by entities that have made commitments to meet or exceed the Paris Agreement targets. Um, It it could be that the politics of Washington will make the federal government the slowest and least consistent um, member of this movement. And if the Biden Harris administration stays in power for eight years and really does take climate change seriously, as seriously as they're talking about taking it, that's enough time to really set establish things in motion that that change the underlying culture in ways that that make it very difficult to roll this progress back, you know, eight, nine, ten years down the road. So So, you know, anybody who who wants to be active in supporting climate action should get busy now. Because this is our window
0: of opportunity to really get the snowball rolling down the hill. And we have just a few minutes left. (laughs) And one of your chapter headings is a plan to turn things around Uh, in three minutes. Can you give us the answer?
1: Well, this is the Action for Climate Empowerment Project. And uh, I would urge people to go to ACE framework, framework ACEframework.us, and read the framework and consider signing on with your organization or your your individual name or both. Uh, And if we, you know, whether we get the green light from the Biden administration to create a national strategy for public empowerment, if we do, we want you to participate in the dialogues that will help plan this national strategy. And I mean that genuinely, openly. We want a lot of we want a lot of involvement in co-creating this. If the Biden administration balks at this or drags their feet and puts it off for a year, we're looking for funding to do this anyway and to deliver it to the Biden administration and to harness the resources of the philanthropic community, the activist community, education community, social science community, science community, business community, in creating a national movement to, to align our work Our diverse work more effectively than we ever have in the past, and we want participants in that process.
0: Did the Obama administration do much to turn things around?
1: Well, you know, they worked entirely by executive order, right? And they—they mean they did negotiate the Paris Agreement, and that was a a breakthrough because of the degree of international agreement about something.
0: But they didn't Uh, have the support of Congress, so they they had to do things by executive order.
1: And there's a chance now. There's a chance now.
0: Um,
1: I mean, I don't think it'll be easy, but I think there's an opportunity for some policy work to make its way through Congress. It might be incremental and, and underwhelming, but the the key to, to Biden's statement was that I want to empower the cities and states to take action on climate change. And this is good, actually good news, because no presidential administration is likely to undermine that in the future.
0: So what do you think, what do you see happening? Are we going to wind up with more people putting solar panels on their homes?
1: Oh, I think um, so. I, I think so. I mean, the prices are falling. Now you can basically, you don't have to buy the panels. You can just buy the electricity, and it and it costs you less than it does usually to buy from a utility company. I think we're going to see a lot more electric transportation. I think we're going to see a lot more changes in urban planning that that allow more people to walk to where they work or ride public transportation and drive less. Um, I think we're going to see changes in agriculture. I hope we're going to see changes mm-hmm. in agriculture. I,
0: I and there was a film we'll that, that showed. There was a film recently that showed that more and more farmers are rejecting the old idea of tilling and. Uh, and and changing their farming methods so that there is a less so that the soil actually absorbs greenhouse gases rather than emits them.
1: Exactly, exactly. And these kind of changes are catching on, and there's a there's a real shift in a lot of agricultural areas to to use less water, and you know which is not universally yet, but but in a lot of places this is crucial because using water means you're. You're using energy to
0: pump it around. So I got to leave it there, unfortunately. Tom Bowman is strategic advisor and writing team lead for the U.S. Action for Climate Empowerment Strategic Planning Framework, an initiative to help meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. His book, "What Is Solving the Climate Crisis? What If Solving the Climate Crisis Is Simple?" is published by ChangeMakers Books. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Leonard. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Uh, and we're also available as an iTunes podcast. You can find links to all of our past shows on our website, leonardlopateatlarge.com. Uh, and if you would like to comment on a show or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a couple of minutes to ask you for your support for this community radio station. If you care about Leonard at large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep it going, especially now in this time. Uh, this pandemic crisis when so many people uh, are struggling to pay bills and uh, have cut back on their support. So I, I hope that you'll step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable giving by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to show your support. That's 516-620-3602. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the book that we've been discussing today, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple by my guest Tom Bowman. It's our way of saying thanks for keeping this whole thing going, but please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at this station and the show, we thank you very much. We are off tomorrow, but I hope you'll join us for Friday's show when journalist and author Barnes Carr will discuss his latest book, The, The Lenin Plot, The Unknown Story of America's War Against Russia. We'll see you then.